We've been in the book of 1 John since the beginning uh, of the new year, and uh, I told you by the time we finished up, we'd be wearing shorts, and I've seen a couple people with shorts today, and so we're almost there. We're in chapter 3, where we've been looking at a series that we've entitled Living in the Light, and I would ask that you would turn to 1 John chapter uh, 3. In fact, we're going to be at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 28 through the end of the chapter, and then into uh, chapter 3, all the way to verse 3. We've been mining the truths of this uh, incredible letter, and we've been learning about the importance of what it means to live a vibrant and healthy faith that is just not found in words, but in action. Uh, John is articulating to us over and over again the importance of our walk matching our talk, and the five chapters of this great letter Uh, devote themselves uh, to that. Uh, We've talked about the importance of a Christian living out that vibrant faith. Uh, We've talked about and we're going to continue to talk about the importance of the Christian living out a life of love. Uh, But today, uh, amidst those two great subjects, John's going to add a third one, and it is the subject of hope and the significant place that hope must have in the life of the believer, not just uh, the hope for tomorrow, but a hope that changes the way we live today. And so I'm going to ask, as we uh, do here at Village Bible Church, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll get into the message. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. This is what uh, the Word of the Lord says. And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears... We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Father God, we come before You and we ask for hope today. We pray that we would receive the hope that can come from You and You alone. But Lord, we don't pray for hope just so that our days will be rosy and bright. But we pray that we will have hope for tomorrow that will change the way we live. A hope for what you are going to do in our future. Not only here in our life on earth, but in the world of eternity to come. And that Lord, because of that hope, it would radically change who we are. And Father, as we've just prayed for uh, the Nichols family, that Father, that that hope would send many of us to serve around the world. That we would know that these years on our on this earth are not the end. But because of the hope that we have, that we would uh, reach out to, to the suffering world around us, to reach out to the world of darkness that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but Lord, it doesn't mean we have to go across the globe to live out this hope. Father, I pray through the words that are articulated today that we would be a people, that because of the living hope that we have, that we would share Jesus Christ with our neighbors and our friends, that, Lord, we would live differently 
that we would do, as, as John says, that we would purify ourselves so that when the world looks at us, even though they don't understand why we do the things that we do, why we say no to the temptations around us, why we love our enemies as well as our friends, that they would see that that love is because of the living hope that we have, that one day you will come to take us home to be with you. Oh, Father, let us not move beyond the words of Jesus Christ in John 14 when he told us he is going to prepare a place for us. Father, I pray that we would not be so earthly minded that we'd forget that we are aliens and strangers sojourning uh, on this earth to bring you glory, honor, and praise, waiting and praying for the day that you will return. It is with that hope, Father, that we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. It is because of that hope that we dedicate our lives to you because what you have promised has come true and we look forward to the day that all of your promises that you've laid before the people that you love would become a reality and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord the one who is to be praised forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our text today, we're going to move back. We were in verse 1 of chapter 3 last week, talking about the love that the Father had lavished on us and how part of that love is the idea that Christ was resurrected from the grave. And today we move back to verse 28 of chapter 2 to take the whole, if you will, paragraph that was in the original uh, writing that John had to look at uh, this idea of hope. In our passage today, hope is the theme that is bookended from verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. You see that in verse 28 when it talks about when He appears. This idea that there is going to be a time that we need to be looking forward to. That we should have hope for tomorrow because Jesus didn't leave us uh, to just live our lives and, and die and be put into a grave. But that there's a day coming when Jesus will come back and He will not just come back for those that are living, but He will resurrect those that are dead in Christ and He will take us to be with Him forever. Paul tells us that because of this hope of his appearing, that we should encourage one another uh, with these words. The concept of Jesus Christ and, and what he has laid before us in the future should be a great source of encouragement for the life of the Christian. But notice the second bookend that we see in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the cardinal virtues of Christianity is that of hope. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, Paul says, after giving a uh, litany of reasons why love is the greatest of things, that he says that there are three things that will remain, that all of the world will pass away, but three things uh, will remain for us, and that is faith, hope, and love. And one of these key themes today is the source of what we need to understand. What is it about hope that we need to make a reality, make forth a reality in our lives? And what does it look like when we are Christians who live in hope? And how does that change the way we live? And how does it show the world that we are truly living in the light? Now, when the world speaks about hope, I want you to write something down somewhere in your outline. The world's definition of hope 
always separates, it always separates the idea, if you will, of hope from certainty. Anytime you hear the world talk about the subject of hope, you will always see a separation between the idea of hope and certainty. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I could have gone down before the church service and uh, stopped over at the Phillips 66 station and uh, instead of purchasing my uh, usual candy bar, I would have looked beyond the counter and seen all of the lotto tickets that are there. And as a a pastor, uh, I would have turned and looked both ways before I did that. And I would have said, give me the Powerball or whatever they call it, Little Lotto or Pick Five or any of those that you can think of. And uh, I'm hoping uh, that I get the right card. I'm hoping that I pick the right numbers. That's the way the world views hope. The idea is, is I don't have a great deal of certainty. If someone was to put a gun to my head and said, Tim, are you willing to stake your life on the idea that that ticket is going to win? I'm going to say, absolutely not. I hope it does, but it doesn't mean that there's any kind of reality of certainty that is there. Our world's hope is always separate from the certainty of the things that are to come. And so the way that the world defines hope is wishful thinking, positive thinking. It is wishing upon a star, uh, to uh, quote uh, a, a famous cartoonist. It is not the idea of focusing in on that which is certain. We talk about hope a lot, and a lot of times we, we generate this thought of uh, hope is this desire to see an outcome take place, but there's really nothing to base that on. I hope that I have a dead relative somewhere that can uh, give me a couple million dollars. I know of no relative. I know of no one in my family that has money. But yet I hope for it. It is separate from the idea of certainty. And so when we talk about hope, the reason why the world doesn't recognize the hope we have is it goes, it goes completely contrary to that of Christian hope. The world's hope stands in direct opposition to the hope that we have as Christians. What does the Christian hope look like? I looked at myriads of definitions and, uh, and I thought long and hard about how we could define hope, especially in our context of today. And I was blown away by Hebrews 6.19. Hebrews 6.19 tells us that, uh, in fact, just turn there for a moment. If you're in 1 John, you're going to go back to your left uh, through the books of 1 and 2 Peter and then, of course, uh, James in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. I want us to, to see this because this will tell us how different the Christian hope is from that of the world. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. In fact, I'll go to verse uh, 18. It says, God did so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, meaning his promises are going to hold true, that we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. The reason why we need hope is we need encouragement. If, if those scriptures were to say, live your life and die, and we don't know what to tell you beyond that, just hope for something at the end of the line, uh, we would have very little encouragement as Christians. But the reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that which we celebrated last week, is of the pinnacle of the Christian faith, it is because it is found to be uh, filled with the idea of hope. 
if Jesus Christ died and was buried, and if he stayed in the grave, then the Bible says we would be pitied above all other men. But that's not the Jesus that we serve. He died. He was crucified dead. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. And because he rose from the grave, it gives us hope that the grave is not our end. And so what the writer says in verse 19, after articulating that this should be an encouragement to us, he says the following, We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Do you look at your hope as an anchor? That which is the ballast that holds you firm and established in the times of great storm? You know, that's what an anchor is used for in, in shipping terms. It's the way to keep the, the boat from, uh, if, if there's a great storm that comes upon it, they'll drop anchor uh, to allow it to weather uh, the storm's uh, brutal attacks. But it's also used to make sure that the boat doesn't go wandering about. When the ship is put into harbor, the anchor is placed down so that when the sailors are off on shore doing their offshore duties and that, that they don't look out into the harbor and see their ship wandering away because of the waves of the sea. And so this hope that we have, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is that which keeps us secure in times of trial and it keeps us steadfast in times of wandering, in times where we can be tempted away from where we need to be. So notice what he says at the end of verse 19. It is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's firm and secure. This hope that we have is certain. It's not only certain, but the writer of Hebrews gives two words for it, firm and secure. How different Hope is for the Christian than it is for me, uh, the one who goes and hopes I will win uh, the, the lotto that night. That's not firm. That's not secure. Uh, it's wishful thinking compared to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so how do we define hope, this firm and secure hope that we have, this hope that is to be a great encouragement for Christians? I was thinking about this, that the Christian hope, if you will, is the sum result of the other two parts of the triad of faith. That if you take faith and you take love, it will equal hope. Now, Tim, how do you get there? Let me give you a definition this morning on what I would define as hope. I'll ask that they throw it up there on the screen. Hope is trusting by faith in God's promises for the future based on what he has already done for those whom he loves. Uh, I put this definition together because I believe that this is, in, in the context of what we're talking about today, the hope that John's talking about. So let's break it down for a moment. Hope is the idea of trusting in something. Uh, if you think about it, there is some truth to the world's hope that when I put my money down for the lotto ticket, I am trusting on the odds that I might win the million dollars. But the trust that's different from the world's hope, that's found in the world's hope, is that our trust is based on faith. The thing that God gives us, enabling us to see 
uh, the things that are unseen, that which is invisible, that which is unable to be seen by human eyes, we are able to see it by the gift of grace found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's trusting by faith through the mechanism of faith in what? The promises of God. What are the promises of God? His word. And the 7,000 plus promises that are contained in his word. Now, why would we trust these promises for the future? Because there's a lot of promises in here that have not yet been revealed. And so why would we trust the future promises that have not yet been revealed? Because we base our hope and our trust in the faith in what Christ or what God has already done for us. Meaning... Christ has already come and paid the penalty for sin and death. Christ already has uh, died, been buried, and rose again. Christ, time after time, has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy of his faithfulness throughout all generations. He's done this, and by looking back at what Christ has done for us and the faithfulness of God, we can look forward and say, if God did it in the past and has been faithful over and over and over again, then it is a sure thing. It is something that with great certainty we can look forward to with great anticipation and hope that God will be faithful to do it in the end. The reason why I am uh, am, uh, uh, hopeful uh, for the resurrection is I have seen the resurrection of my own heart going from death to life. I've seen that which God has taken where I was dead, blind, and held captive by the devil. And he has resurrected by the gift of grace and through his mercy and the love that he lavished on me that I have seen how he's taken me from death to life. Why would I think that would only be spiritual? If he has already told me that that would take place and that in a future time that it would be a physical death that I would encounter but that I would not see decay in the grave but absent from the body present with the Lord. And so this hope is if faith in what God promises for the future based on what he's already done for who? Those whom he loves. The world has no hope. Paul talks about that. Paul says the world grieves differently than we grieve because they don't have the hope that we have. I've buried a loved one, my brother, of course, and uh, in burying him, uh, when we did that, the the moment we we got around uh, uh, the burial plot and and watched his casket go to the ground, into the ground, knowing we uh, would not see him in this life, uh, would cause us to grieve greatly. But I remember my dad bringing our family together, saying, "This is not a goodbye, but this is a see you later. We'll be with you soon." We have hope. We have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why our hope should change who we are. And that's what John is talking about this morning. What he's saying is, is if you say you have hope, then it will change the way you live today. Hope for tomorrow means a different today. But sadly, in the Christian world, that isn't the case. If I was to ask you the question, do you have hope? I believe many of you would say, absolutely. I've got great hope in what is going to come for tomorrow. But the question then is, why doesn't it change today? Within evangelical circles, especially here in America, we have a great infatuation with things that involve the end times. We love to talk. We love to speculate about it. 
I did some research, of course, uh, and uh, Kevin O'Brien will like this because it's about the company that he works for. Tyndale House Publishing has published, and we were talking, Kevin, 65 million copies of the Left Behind series. 65 million. 80% of that has been published here, published and sold in the United States. Do you think we have an infatuation with the end times events? 65 million copies. You would think that because we know that Jesus Christ is coming, because we know that he will judge the quick and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed tells us, just as we recognize that Jesus is going to come in the clouds, you would think the 65 million people, and me included, who have read those books, would live differently. But I want to read from, and I'm going to have them throw it on the screens, a book from a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ron Sider. And he says the following, Scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. I want you to know that sin is treason before God. When we sin, we are the Benedict Arnolds of Almighty God. And what Ron is saying is that we commit treason almost every day. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but this is where 1 John comes into line. But with their actions, they demonstrate an allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. Turn the, flip the thing there. The findings in numerous national polls conducted by the highly respected pollsters like the Gallup Organization... And the Barna group are simply shocking. He goes on to quote, Gallup and Barna hand us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles that are every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, and self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Let's hold there for a second. I want you to take that in. What our surveys tell us is that we who are attending at Village Bible Church are just as likely to embrace the lifestyles that we look with great disdain upon in the world, except we have found a way to do it in private or to do it in a way that does not compromise our ability to be here on Sunday mornings and to smile and say how great and glorious our fellowship with Jesus Christ is. Now, wait a minute. If we have hope, If we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and that we should be confident as his appearing, what in our thinking says that we should be hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral? Isn't, aren't those the things, if you will, that will cause us to be shamed at his coming? Now turn the, the thing. This is what he goes on to say. Divorce is more, uh, more common among born again Christians than in the average, uh, or in the general American population. Only 6% of evangelicals tithe. Uh, white evangelicals are the most likely people, listen to this, to object to neighbors of another race. Are you kidding me? Josh McDowell points out uh, that the sexual promiscuity of the youth in our evangelical churches is only a little less outrageous than that of their non-Christian peers. Now notice what it says. This is what I want us to hit on. It is odd to me, Ron Sider says, that American Christians that are so enamored with biblical prophecy, yet they ignore the daily application of prophetic truth to their daily lives. We want to believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. We want to have that hope. 
But that hope does not change who we are. Can I tell you something? If hope doesn't change your today, then it's no hope at all. It isn't. If you have a hope for what Jesus is going to do in the future, then that means you have faith and trust in what God is going to do today. And Ron tells us that there's a lot less hopefulness in the church because we ignore the application of the truth that is found in our text today. So our text comes before us and it confronts this deadly disease that the modern church has and it deals with it head on. He says it without pulling any punches. The book of uh, 1 John tells us if you understand prophecy, then you will live a life of hope that changes the way you live. Notice what John says. Go back to 1 John again in our text. If anyone has this hope in Christ, then he will purify himself just as Christ is pure. Doesn't say that you should purify yourself or that maybe you'll purify yourself, but that you will purify yourself. John's aim in our text today reminds us of our present position as children of God and our future hope of being like Jesus when he comes and that it will motivate us to grow in holiness today. But how do we get there? How do we do it? I want to quote a song that I believe should be the motto of the Christian faith. Uh, The group Fleetwood Mac years ago uh, put together a song that was entitled Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Of course, that song was then revisited uh, in the campaign of Bill Clinton in 1992. And the idea is, is that our today will be radically different within that thought of the motto. I don't think it was the intention of Fleetwood Mac uh, for this kind of Christian hope. But it's a great reminder that as we live today, that Christians must have two thoughts in mind. What I'm doing in the now and what is going to take place in the future. I can't separate the things that I do today as a Christian to the things that will take place tomorrow. Because I know that there's a righteous judge in heaven. There is one who will look over all the things that I've done at the judgment seat of Christ who will render whether or not I was effective in my work for the gospel or if I lived for myself. And so everything that we as Christians do must never have us forget to stop thinking about tomorrow. That needs to be our thought in mind. Yesterday I was watching the Masters Golf Tournament. And during one of the uh, commercial breaks, AT&T had come out with a commercial that I'd never seen before. And the motto of the AT&T commercial was that every second may be your last second. What a motto for Christians. Have you thought about that? When was the last time you were involved in your daily activities of your life and you stopped and you thought, this could be the moment. Jesus could come back. Am I ready? Am I secure and confident at his time of coming? If we would live with that thought in mind, can I tell you something? We would be able to find more victory over temptation and sin. Because if we were really to think, what if the Lord was to come back when I was involved in the activity of sin that I'm involved in? What would happen if the last words that came out of my mouth are words of gossip and slander that tear down the brother or sister in Christ? 
What would happen if Jesus came at that moment and the last words I utter on this earth are words of great harm and hurt to another person? What if Jesus was to come back and the last thing that I did here on earth was surfing on the internet things that I should not be looking at? How confident will I be at His coming? How confident will I be if the last thing that I do is sign off on my uh, W-2s and my uh, uh, 1040 tax report? It gets close to home this week, by the way. And, and, I, and I just kind of fudge the numbers. What would happen if that was the last thing I did? What would Jesus say to me? I'll tell you what, the temptation's big, especially in the Badal house this week. Man. It would change if we had a living hope that Peter talks about. It would radically change the way we live today. Do you believe that Jesus could come back this very moment? And if so, are you ready for his coming as we're called to be? So what are we to do? Let's get to this outline here. The first thing that we need to do is don't stop reflecting the attributes of the Father. The first thing that we need to do as believers, if we don't want to stop thinking about tomorrow, is don't stop reflecting the attributes of our Father. If we are going to live in light of our thinking about tomorrow, then our lives must be characterized by a couple things. Notice in verse 28 again, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. The thing that we are being told is, is that Jesus Christ is coming back. And so we have a response. And the response is, is that we need to live differently. And the way that we are called to live goes back all the way to chapter 1, verse 5. That we are to live as light just as God is light. In chapter 2, verse 6, it tells us that if we want to profess or claim that we are with Jesus, then we must walk as Jesus did. And so what that means is a reflecting of certain characteristics or attributes of our God in heaven. But the metaphor that John uses is a metaphor of a family sense, and that is of the Father and us as children. Notice what the first thing we need to do. We need to live as obedient children. This term children is seen throughout 1 John. It's seen heavily in verses 12 through 14 of John chapter 2. And it's seen throughout. But in our text, it is dealing with a different type of children. See, John says children over and over about two, almost two dozen different times in, our, in the letter of 1 John. But what he's usually talking about is saying, dear children, as an older individual looks upon a younger person. And he says, you're but a child. And so what John is saying, not in this text, but in all the other ones, is as an old man who was almost in his 90s, many scholars believe, that he was looking at this congregation around him and he was calling him as the aged elder in the church, the children in the midst. But this is not what John is addressing. When he speaks about children in the context today, he speaks about our relationship not with an old elder, but our heavenly father. And what he's articulating is we are children of God. Notice what he says. How great is the love who? The Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. He goes on to say, dear friends, in verse 2, now we are children of God. This idea reminds us that we are to reflect the nature and the attributes of our Father. And it means living as obedient children. 
This term children is something that we need to recognize of that it should change the way that we live. Because of the miracle of regeneration, being born again, every Christian bears the image of Almighty God, not just in who they are and in the makeup of the human body, because all creation, men, women, and children bear the image of God, We have emotion, we have uh, choice, and we have uh, the ability to think and have an intellect. And because of those three things, we bear the image of Almighty God. But now, as in the Spirit, now being made alive in Christ, we now bear the image of God in a spiritual way. We're born again, and we have become His children And what that means is, is that a couple things are going to take place. First of all, the world isn't going to know us or understand us. Notice what the text says at the end of verse 1. It says that the love that the Father has lavished on us, and we'll be called children of God, that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. How did it not know Him? In a spiritual way. And so when He looks at, when the world looks at us, it says, why are they acting that way? Why do they operate with the line of thinking that they do? Why do they live with the certain issues and parameters that are formed in their life? It is because the believer believes by faith that God the Father has lavished on us the love that only a father can lavish on his children. The world looks at God and says, he's not my father. He's a megalomaniac. He's not my father. He's a killjoy. He's not my father. He's the guy that puts all the rules into life that make, fu- uh, make uh, life no fun at all. But the believer looks at the father and says, thanks be to God. You have poured out your blessing upon blessing upon blessing in my life. So what does it mean to live as obedient children? Even though the world doesn't understand it, what it means is, is that we will reflect, whether we like it or not, we will reflect uh, to the world the reflection of the father. Now, many of you know my parents, but many of you don't. You've never met them. You've never talked with them. But I can assure you that just based on the DNA that is formed in me, that the way I talk and the way I look and even the way I act, if you've never seen them or heard from them or been a part of Bill and Michelle's life, you would be able to look and say, aha, I see it. I know why he talks that way. Now I know why he acts that way. Now I know why he looks that way. His parents look that way. His parents act that way. His parents talk like that. I hear over and over again from people that, boy, you sound just like your dad. Why? I didn't, I didn't look to, to sound like Bill. I didn't say my goal in life is to mimic my dad. But why do I? Because I've imitated, I reflect the attributes and the the, uh, nature of my parents. We do that. I look at my boys and they do the same thing. They laugh at the things I laugh at with the same laugh that I have and Amanda has. Because they're a part of us. They have our DNA within them. Well, just like we do as physical children, we reflect the nature of God. And we do it without even knowing it. 
There are things in our lives, if the Holy Spirit uh, is resident in your life, that whether you like it or not, are living in sin or not, that you will reflect certain things that are from God and God alone. Now, the thing that I would ask of you isn't to base your Christian faith on whether you are a good Christian or a bad Christian. A lot of people do that, and it creates a great amount of turmoil in the life of the believer. How can I be a Christian if I do the things that I do? That's a valid question, but it's not a question that we should per se base our entire salvation on. But the thing I would ask is, I would have some real issues and questions about who I am if I was a red-haired, freckly-faced kid who bared no image of my parents. And I'd ask the question, did you really just adopt me or what? I don't look anything like you. I don't carry any of the mannerisms that you do. And yet you say, I'm your son. Something's got to give. Something doesn't make sense. I will tell you that as a believer, if you don't have things that are resident within you, that when you sin, that there is this thought, yeah, I better not be doing this. This is a problem. And that's when you need to go back to God and say, maybe I'm not a believer. Because I don't bear by nature the things that you say I should bear. If you live without hope, if your life is not characterized by faith, and you don't have love for God or love for others... Those three, that triad of the Christian, uh, Christian religion, a part of your life, because we follow the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I would say, go back to the drawing board and ask the question, am I a child of God? It starts with our DNA. Notice the second thing of this reflection. This reflection involves imitating his character. Imitating his character. Now, the thing that, uh, as a son, that I can't uh, do anything about is how I look, maybe how I sound, how I act in some particular ways because it's a part of my makeup, that I bear those things. All children will do that. There is something that I, I can't hide in my life that is a part of Bill and Michelle but all. But I want you to notice something. I want you to know that there are things that I don't have to do. What I don't have to do is imitate their way of life. And so what I can do is while I look like a Badal, while I sound like a Badal, Amanda says sometimes I smell like a Badal. She says there's Middle Eastern odors and stuff like that. I don't buy it. (laughs) That I don't have to live like my parents. And so what I could do is even though my parents are godly people, I could live like H-E-double hockey sticks and I could fail to imitate the character and the life that they've laid before me. I could pursue all kinds of sin, all kinds of issues in my life. And at certain times, especially in my teenage life, I did that. Instead of living like mom and dad, I chose to live other ways. And so when I would get in trouble, especially with the law and because we lived in a small town, the police officer would say, wait a minute, you're Bill Badal's boy. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. Why, why are you in this situation? I know your dad. He doesn't act this way. And then he would look with kind of a, a joy in his heart. And you won't act this way either after he gets a hold of you. And so there's this first idea that as Christians, we bear the image of Almighty God within our nature, but we have a decision to make. And the decision is, are we going to imitate the character of our Father in heaven? 
That's a decision we have to make. The first is pretty passive on our part. I look the way I do, not because I dedicated myself to looking this way. Well, I did in some ways. But, but dedicating myself in this way, it happened because of who I was born of. But the decision I have now is, will I not only imitate uh, through my DNA what I look like, but will I imitate what they do? And the reason why I'm standing up here today, the reason why I'm a person that is filled with faith, the person that has hope, the person that desires to love the people of God and the people of this world, is not per se, and please understand me, because I'm a great Christian, but because I've imitated some great people. I've watched my parents. I've watched my parents love the unlovable. I've watched my parents have faith when faith shouldn't be lived out. I've watched my parents have hope when there seems like there's no hope for tomorrow. And I made a conscious decision, and I will tell you it was about 18 or 19 years of age that I said, you know what? I see the world and I see what the world has to offer and I look at the faith my parents have and by golly, the Lord has never let my parents down and that's good enough for me and I'm going to put my wholehearted faith and trust in Jesus Christ in every facet of my life because I want to not just imitate my parents character but the father in heaven I'm imitating them as they imitate Christ that's what Paul's talking about well how do we do that notice in our text it says that we are to be righteous this idea of righteous is the idea of being completely uh, set apart and, and filled with uh, a sense of guiltlessness faultlessness and total innocence This is what God is speaking of God in verse 29. He's guiltless, faultless, and totally innocent. He's completely righteous. And now God calls us to live that way. When used in the sense uh, with the term, with this term in the Christian life, what it means is that we are going to live in a way that our thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the word and will of God in heaven. Everything that we do, if we are going to be righteous, as he is righteous, it means we are going to live differently. My parents always used to say when I left as a teenager, remember who you are. You're a Bedal. And Bedals don't do those types of things. Why? Because I'm conformed to something different. Now before you think we're going to go on for two hours, let's look at the next thing. And that is that we not need to not just stop reflecting uh, the nature and attributes of our Father, but we need to not stop abiding as faithful Christians. If we have this hope for tomorrow, then we need to understand that it's going to change how we live today. Well, how do we do that? How do we understand how to live as children? I want to read to you uh, the first part of this by a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, I do feel that it is perhaps the greatest weakness of all in the Christian church that we fail to realize what we are and who we are. He says that most of our unhappiness is due to our failure to re- relate our trials to our glorious position as children of God. If only we realized who we are, then the problem of our conduct would almost automatically be solved. If we would just recognize who we are and where God has positioned us, then we would understand that we can't live in a certain way. The more I read the New Testament, the more I'm impressed with the fact that every appeal for us to live with godly conduct and godly living and behavior is made up in terms of how to live in light of our position as children of God. And so what does that mean? As, uh, as faithful Christians, 
it means that first of all, we must recognize the position that we already have. We have to recognize the position we already have. If we carry the image of Almighty God, and because of that have hope for tomorrow, that hope comes from the position that we have. We're His children. His children who have had their love lavished upon them. We are children that must pursue righteousness to conform our ways to the way of the Father, and we are to be pure as He is pure. The reason why is that the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were justified, you were clean, you were cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so the first thing we need to understand is that the Christian life isn't about fixing up ourselves so that one day we can present ourselves before God. That's part of the air of our friends in the Roman Catholic Church. That God gives a little and now we've got to give a little. And it's a misunderstanding of God's justifying work in the believer. The moment I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ was the moment that I now stand fully righteous just as Christ is righteous before God. Meaning, if I was to die today, even if I was found to be in the most heinous of sins that I would stand based on the justifying work of Jesus Christ and the power of His blood on the cross, I would stand before the Father in heaven just as Jesus does, blameless and without fault. That's an amazing thought. But what that should lead us to is not to lead us to say, well, if that's the case, if I'm completely righteous as He is righteous, then I can sin and I can live however I want. The Bible says, should we sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. And so what it should lead us to is because Christ has paid such a penalty, has paid such a price for the penalty of my sin and taken away uh, the penalty of sin being death, then shouldn't I live based on what he has done? Shouldn't I live differently? Remembering what has been done for me. That Romans 5, 1 and 2 says that I've been justified. And now because I'm justified, I have peace with God. And because I have peace with God, now I've gained access to God. And because I have access to God, now I have the hope of the glory of Almighty God. If I've had this happen in my life, then it should propel me to live differently than I'm living today. And what does that mean? It means that there's a path that we should follow. If we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to live out what Christ has already done for us, then it should change the way we practice this thing called life. Notice what the writer says. John says that the way that we do that, he says in verse 28, and now, dear children, continue in him. That word, we've talked about it before, is the word, that, the more well-known word, abiding or remaining. It literally means, means that we stay in a fixed position or state. It was used in the first century to speak about one who had a permanent residence in a certain location. And so what that means is, what John is saying is that if you have this hope, you're going to purify yourself, not because you need to purify yourself, because God hasn't done it for you, but you're going to purify yourself because if He is righteous, then your desire should be to be righteous just as He is. And if you're going to do that, then that means you must find residence in he who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. What that means is, is that you build your house and your life and every intention and dream that you have, you build it as close to Jesus as you can. But the believers so many times were transient. We go back and forth. Well, on Sundays, I want my house as close to Jesus as possible. 
But on Monday through Saturday, isn't it good to have my house and my life on the other side of the tracks? Well, it's Sunday, got to get back over here. And every once in a while, (laughs) people find you in the middle of moving. And that's awkward. What John is saying is be fixed. Place your life and everything that you do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That every way, every decision that you make is made from the place of where God has you instead of the place where you have run. Why would we do this? Because there's a prize that we look to gain one day. Why do we abide? Why do we remain in Christ? Why do we live that way? Is it because the world doesn't? No. Is it because it's the quote-unquote most fun in the moment? Well, no, because sin is fun for a season, the Scripture says. But Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, let me just read this for us. It's a famous passage. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now what does he say? Based on Jesus already taking hold of me, Paul says the following, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it, meaning Christ, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Does he have to get that prize? No, that prize has already been gotten for him. He says, "My, I've already been taken hold of. Jesus has got a hold on me. But my job, based on what Jesus has done for me, is to make sure that when I enter into glory, that God the Father sees me running and straining as much as I can to get back to that Jesus. To pursue Jesus. Now notice what he says after that very famous part of the passage. All of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. And he goes on and he closes with this. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What is your prize? To get to where Jesus had you the moment you were saved. He who began a good work in us is faithful to see it to the day of completion. The question is, are you going to fight Jesus every step of the way? Or are you going to work and serve and love Jesus because he first loved you? The Bible says that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we are going to be judged for what we've done. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 tell us, whether good or bad, we will be judged for what we've done in the body. That is where we are going to see the very things that we thought were of such great good burned up. So what does it mean? It means don't live and serve and minister over here apart from Christ, but make it your every thought and every desire and every motivation to abide and remain with Jesus. Number three, we need to stop, not stop anticipating our future with Christ. Notice verse two and three. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we shall, uh, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's hope. John says, our hope is based on what Christ has already lovingly done for us on the cross for those whom he loves. But our hope is built on the thought that we are anticipating for something to come. 
Hope always involves the future. Hope always involves the unknown in some aspect. Not that it doesn't take away from our certainty, but it's something we have not seen realized yet. And John articulates the first thing that we need to know about the future. Number one, we don't know everything about it. Write that somewhere in your outline. We don't know everything that is going to happen in the future. The first thing that we don't know is when eternity will begin. Uh, Some of you listen to a very famous uh, radio personality. I don't know how many of you do. I hope not too many. I get in trouble by saying that. But but there's a a guy on a a radio station, not Moody, just want to communicate that, that says that Jesus Christ is coming back next May. Not this May, but next May. Okay? And we need to be ready. And this is the same guy that has told us that the church age is over and that all of his listeners need to get out of Village Bible Church and all the other churches and need to uh, be a part of little house churches that are just waiting for Jesus to come. Now I want you to know that he has said other times that Jesus was going to come and he never did. Okay? His math was wrong. Got to have Al on his staff and make sure that that's all taken care of. And I can assure you, he's wrong again. Because no one knows the hour or the day. Even my brother on the radio. So we don't know. But there are more things we don't know. Notice what John says. He says, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't know what heaven is going to be like. We know some parts of it, but but we don't know. I think about heaven a lot, and I think about it in terms of those that have already gone. I think about my brother. What is Chris doing right now? I cannot see him dressed up like a little angel with a diaper on playing a harp. Just not him. And boy, I hope that's not what happens, because I need to bow flex it a little more then. (laughs) We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what it's going to mean eternity. Wrap your mind around that. Infinity. Pure holiness and righteousness. Seeing Jesus. There's much that we don't know. But what do we know? Notice what John says. He says that even though we don't know everything, it's not yet been made known, we know that we shall see him and we shall be like him when he appears, for we shall see him as he is. This is important. He says, we know that when he appears. Notice he doesn't say if he appears or on the possibility that he appears. But we know. The word know there speaks of certainty of the very laws of nature. As certain as I was is that the sun was going to create light today. And that in about 12 hours it will be dark. That same certainty that I know those things are going to happen is the same certainty that I know Jesus Christ is going to appear. And that we are going to be like him. Now notice the first thing that it involves. It involves knowing and remembering that Jesus Christ is coming back. We know that when he appears. Jesus said, or the angel said in Acts 1.8, Men of Galilee, why do you stare at the clouds? This same Jesus who was carried up into heaven will come back one day just as he went up. And then the book of Revelation tells us at the very end of the Bible, it says, yes, Jesus says, I am coming soon. So we need to recognize and remember that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said it. It's in his word. I believe it. And that settles it. He's coming back. Do you live in light of that return? We have to remember that. He's coming back. And if he's coming back, then everything that he says that's going to happen in eternity will be a reality. Number two, 
that he, when he comes back, there will be the restoration of all things. John tells us that the restoration sur- surrounds itself around us. We shall be like him. On that great day, you and I will be transformed. For the sake of time, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57 speak of this. That which is perishable will become imperishable. That which is mortal will, be, will take on immortality. Why? Because John says we will be just as he is. Remember, not as he was. We won't be like Jesus in the manger. We won't be like Jesus as he was growing up in Nazareth. We won't be like Jesus as uh, he's walking on the road to Golgotha, the place where the cross would be. We won't be like Jesus in the grave. We won't be like Jesus as he uh, uh, was in the grave during those three days, but we will be like Jesus as he is, resurrected. We will be like him. We will carry our bodies just as he does because he is the first one from the dead. He is the first of the resurrection and we will be like him because we will see him. And the only way that we can see him in his glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords is that we too are raised. And that the resurrection that we too will see the reality that we are his children and we are heirs of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will live for him for all of eternity praising the name of that God not with our faces veiled but face to face. And that means that every sin Every struggle, every health condition, every kind of bitterness between brother to brother will once and for all be taken care of because we will be glorified and we shall be like Him. Oh, what a day. If you don't look forward to that day, check your spiritual pulse because you are missing something. We should be looking forward to it. Finally, we we see the responsibility to live in light of this hope. If this is the hope that you have, I'm just going to quickly tell you this. John says, if you have this hope, you'll purify yourself. You're going to live differently. If you have this hope, you're going to say no to sin. If you have this hope, you're not going to live for the things that the world lives for. If you have this hope, you're going to put your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross. And you're going to do that because you, just like Paul, are going to strain to get the prize that Christ has called you heavenward. This is the hope that we have. I want to close with this quote by John Piper. It's going to go on the screen, and then I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And then we're going to ask our friend Brad Darge to close our time with a song. But John Piper says this, This confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement that we need for daily life. Listen to this. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, the hope that John speaks about puts us in the marketplace, on the battlefield, where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative, he says. It is a shot of adrenaline, a spiritual blood transfusion. Is that the hope that you have? The hope that Jesus Christ is coming back that propels you to fight the fight, to keep the faith and to run the race. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this hope. This living hope that Peter talks about that is is secure and steadfast. Father, I pray that we would be people of hope. That we would recognize what Christ has done for us 
that he's lavished his love upon us, that we would be his children. And knowing that he's his ch- we are his children, that we would recognize that we must live differently. Father, I pray that the people of Village Bible Church would imitate, not their elders, not their pastors, but they would imitate Jesus. And that we would live for him, knowing that that same Jesus who died, who was buried and rose for us, is one day coming back. And your son said he's coming soon. So Lord, I pray that we would be ready.